Hey, and welcome to the Blood, Sweat and Ears podcast. Today I'm joined by the unreasonably tall Ross McLennan. Ross has been involved in the UK metal scene for the last decade, playing guitar with death metal bands such as Abhorrent Decimation, Viscera and Ingested. Today we're going to be talking about the recording process in extreme music, amps versus modelers, and the realities of playing in a touring band in 2023. Here we go. Thanks for coming in today, Ross. Thanks for coming in for a chat. That's quite all right. How are you doing? Very tired. Good. Um, yeah. Not Living good. the dream. Aces. So, yeah, we're going to just chat over some stuff in a very leisurely manner. So we might as well start at the start. So I kind of met you quite a few years ago. You were like knocking around playing in bands and I got to know you better when I had a studio, Hayward's Heath way. Uh, Empire. Yeah, with Dave Archer. Yeah. Because you I imagine were, we probably met down the White Hart first of all. Yeah, for pound fifty a point night. Yeah. Back in the day. Glory days. The glory days of drinking and listening to Sublime. You love it. <laughs> before that, before the Audio Empire vibe, which was probably 2015, 2014. 2015 and onwards. What were you kind of doing musically then i met you what yeah was... not to downplay it so just so everyone knows like ross is an extremely talented shreddy guy so he's got some shot i mean if you want it from day one a i was actually playing bass in a skate punk band at school that's how it all started was that with paul hamilton that was with paul hamilton bars paul's probably a stone's throw away from where we are now yeah we could probably get him around probably could <laughs> so yeah i did that for a bit and i say late-ish to the game but you know you look at some of these players now like i was watching videos of tim henson and just crying because there was videos of him at like 14 years old yeah I just saw that. nailing everything it's just embarrassing how awful i am compared to that guy i was taking lessons with a really super talented jazz guitarist called christoph moody and the reason i was playing bass is because it was just like you know what it's like when you start a school band it's just like whoever's first to guitar is playing guitar Boz was an awesome drummer, so it was kind of handy to cover up how bad me and Paul were. And the more lessons I had with Chris, just the better my playing got. And then as I got better, I got more interested in more technical music. And that's when I sort of steered towards metal because I could actually play it now. Like I was listening to Metallica, Megadeth and everything like that at school. I wasn't really into new metal at school. That was the one thing. The one thing that held me back almost with like, the modern day sound of metal is because I just hated new metal. Like everyone was into Slipknot. But I think maybe that's because your theory is pretty spot on. So maybe yeah. you were like listening to it and going, this is like basic bitch. I'm a little bit older than you. And I came from like grunge. Yeah. So, and I think you're really influenced by the stuff you're listening to. Mm. It's like you were talking about Tim Henderson. I'm sure all the shit he was listening to was like Satriani. Yeah. So yeah. He, his like day one thing is like sick where... I was like three chord wonder. So the new metal thing for me kind of was a easy transition yeah. from basic grunge chords to new metal chords. It was yeah. just tune different. I see. I think when I listened to that stuff, I had was well elitist back in the day. Still am. And I just sort of thought like, you know, everyone's praising people like Mick Thompson, the guitarist from Slipknot. Yeah. And God, I can't think of the names. Mike Mashok, was he something? He had a signature model. Was it Disturbed? Oh, no, that's... Mike, isn't that Lincoln Park? Is that him? It could. I, don't. I know he had like a signature model, and I was just like, this dude's got like the worst signature model ever. Twenty-eight inch baritone, six string, no solos. I was just like, nah. And then I was watching like 
you know, like Megadeth live DVDs and watching Marty Friedman just shred it up. So I was just getting more and more and more into that. So then I strayed away from that. And then my band playing kind of took a sidestep because of that was around like Dunn College. There was no, no one playing metal that I wanted to be near at college because they wanted to, you know, wear eyeliner and there wasn't your kilts vibe. and weird sort of barbed wire stuff. Yeah, yeah, that sort of like new metal vibe. Listening to your band, going to the Harlequin and watching you play and me being like, there's no solos. Yeah, actually, that's uh, that's saying it's stuck, stuck with me. I think I was still living in Rygate, so I must have been in my mid-20s and I think you were over hanging out with my flatmate or we're around and you basically told me that my guitar sucked because it yeah. didn't have a Floyd Rose on <laughs> Floyd it. Rose. I was like, brah. <laughs> yeah, no, that sounds about right. Um, so yeah, like I stopped, I kind of like almost stopped being in bands. I was always like playing at home and I was playing like Cacophony songs and Ingway Malmsteen and stuff like that. And then I got accepted into uni, like a normal, I don't want to mug them off too much, but not like an ACM or a BIM or anything like that. I got accepted to like a straight music degree just off of an audition more than anything else. I played Far Beyond the Sun by Ingway Malmsteen to a backing track and I absolutely nailed it for some reason. I was fluffing the whole day and then just for some reason it pulled together. And yeah, I got around to uni and I was not surrounded by people that were into metal at all. I was one guitarist out of 30, 40 students. Everyone else was violins, cellos, bassoon. So there was no chance of me finding a metal band there. Oxford, oh, Oxford Brooks, by the way. I didn't know you went to Oxford Brooks. I went to Oxford Just Brooks. Big boy stuff. You know, the modules weren't geared towards shredding. It was in, like, it was, you know, classical composition and um, weird stuff as well, like opera and politics and stuff like that. So I wasn't really in a band for the whole start of my 20s. And then I came out of uni. Joined a few different bands. I was in a band called Apparitions of the End up in Northamptonshire. I had to travel up there sort of like two, three hours to get to Daventry for practice. They were a good band, but, you know, it was one of those like where no one really has any idea of how the industry works. The, the playing and the materials there, but no budget, no idea. So didn't really go anywhere. Then got offered to join another band in Brighton, which was a bit easier, only half an hour away, a band called Echo Virus. But again, I think I joined a kind of sinking ship there. Then joined another sinking ship, a band called Terrathorn. And then I kind of shied away from it for a little bit. And that would have been probably about the time I joined a band called Rain of Fury. Did some good shows with Rain of Fury. And then sort of, that was more what I could get hold of at the time. So this was like thrashy sort of stuff. Yeah, because I remember Rain of Fury just being like proper down picky Kinda yeah, it's like gear, wasn't Metallica it? meets Iron Maiden, but it wasn't satisfying my sort of my shred needs as much. I only got into death metal in like 2015, 2016 because of I found all the like riffy sort of stuff in the thrash metal scene a bit too easy. I'd started to like get more into technical death metal, bands like Necrophagist and gonna say Necrophagist and all of that. So I was just like, you know. That was a new challenge because of playing that fast and that technical on the high register was fine. I'd been doing that for ages, but then doing it on low strings with, you know, huge gauge strings on, mm-hmm. I was like, this is a new challenge. So around that time, I got a phone call from Ashley Scott to join Abhorrent Decimation. Nice. And that's when we started hanging out. I think that was 
where we were getting to and i've gone on a massive tangent no no it's not tangent that's what happened and yeah actually he's talking about ash he phoned me the other day and he spoke to you as well it's really yeah, nice to is. catch up with him and uh yeah, he's like doing the family thing and not screaming and chilling yeah. for a bit which he's really relaxed yeah. but i think when we were doing that band he had so much on his plate i mean he's got a like a very involved job and then doing the band on top of that as well because he was doing everything which positives and negatives because obviously one person's in control. So, you know, when the ship starts to go down, there's only one way the finger can be pointed. But at the same time, you know, spreading the load, spreading the workload, there is advantages to it. I mean, if you're in a band, it's, you know, it's a, you could put a podcast about this, just this one single topic where mm. the workload is spread. And I think Ash took too much on, which was in the end, part of the reason of the downfall of that band. I think with that stuff, it's really hard because you want it to work. And when we're a little bit younger and a little bit kind of less worldly, that's a really good, well, in your brain, that's a really good way of canning things. And it's hard in bands. You get the same personalities in bands. You always get the guy who doesn't do anything. You get the really proactive people. And then it it's just an absolute blend. And it, you know, it's... If you go, if you went it went in it, uh, you know, in a kind of psychology way, that'd be fascinating. It it's just gross because they're really broken. And I remember years ago, one of my friends who was playing the right, kind of same time as I was, he went on tour with Alexis on fire, and he said they they didn't drink. And I was like, what? Didn't smoke any weed or do anything fun? And he said they basically like sat on their laptops and didn't talk. And I was like, what? And that's that was their control method, not to kill each other. Yeah. I'm guessing, retrospectively, I can get behind that way more. And oh yeah, definitely. Obviously, towards the end of um, you know, when because I used to come out and do sound with you guys, you know, not that that was the vibe, but it was way more like go in, get the show done, go back to the hotel, go back to the hotel, yeah, and just chill out rather than you know, twenty years ago when I was doing it when I was in my early twenties of like literally to get really drunk and just be awful humans yeah yeah and that doesn't really wash anymore yeah i think bands like need to go like there's a gauntlet that you've got to run through because of from touring with ingested i obviously spent a lot of time in the van with them and a lot of time just you know downtime of touring and they would tell me what they were up to back in the day and it is astounding that they've got through and survived as a band but mm. I think the fact that they've not stopped is the reason they're at the point that they're at now. You've just got to bully through those stages. Yeah, and I was literally talking talking about this yesterday. We're talking about Skin Dread. Cause, they're going out with Kiss. Yeah, and, and it's this really weird thing because I toured with Skin Dread and they, they, I think they toured that first record for something like a decade. Yeah. And you know, it had some bucks on it and it just didn't do anything for years and years and years. Then I, I'd kind of stopped playing in bands and I was off, you know, working in a theatre or whatever the hell I was doing. And then I saw they were getting more and more traction and, you know, good for them. But that must have been an absolute slog and a half. Yeah, especially those same songs. I mean, you do one tour now and you're just like, I'm struggling to concentrate. Because I'm so bored. Yeah, and they had that whole stage show where, you know, Benji would like 
get his keyboard out at the end of the show and they'd do this whole like reprise thing and someone would get like a hook and pull him off the stage. It's really funny, but it, I just, it's I don't know. the first time you do it. And then after that, it's just like, come on now. They're still doing the, what's it? The Newport helicopter. The spinny thing. Yeah. Shirts off. Well. I remember them being at the Harlequin. Doing that? Yeah. That is such a weird band in the fact that they, I don't think their headline shows would pull more than like, what, five, six hundred? They'd fill the, they wouldn't fill the electric ballroom, I don't think. Would you agree? I, I don't really know anymore, man. I, like, as a booking agent, I would just be like, I don't know where this band fits in. Yeah, but but then again, you know, just to kind of be devil's advocate on that, because they do like dance ragger stuff as well. Mm. It's like it's ticking way more boxes than just like Arkspire. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, but who would you put them on a package with? I know they're out with that tour announcement that they're going out with Kiss, I think is insane. Because there's going to be a lot of old crusties there, just like, what is this? Yeah. Well, Why has everyone got their shirt off? Why are they whipping it around their head? Yeah, this isn't our vibe. But, you know, fair to them, man, because they, they, they slogged it and they're a great band. And so good, good for them. Yeah. If that's your vibe. I wanted to kind of touch on recording because this podcast is mainly on recording. It's and my biggest weak spot. Production. Well, it kind of is and it isn't. You did some records a couple of years ago and they, from what I saw of them being made, I thought it was quite interesting the way it was done in a kind of like, yeah, non-linear fashion, as it were. So I just wanted to kind of, kind of, yeah, talk about kind of the abhorrent stuff and how that was done and demoed. And the way that came to fruition in in kind of the non-linear way it did, because it wasn't recorded like a record. Yeah, yeah, I get what you mean. So, I mean, where do you start? I mean, the bulk, the heavy bulk of that was written by Archer. And we sort of, I mean, when you look back at it, it was Archer at Audio Empire consistently. And we would either be practicing for upcoming shows while Archer cracked on, or I would be sat with Archer until all hours. I mean, I've been there two, three, four o'clock in the morning having to go up at seven o'clock the next day. And I think he was the same. He was just sleeping there, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. He was just sleeping on that couch. Yeah. Dave Archer was the, he was an engineer with me at Audio Empire and he played bass in Abhorrent and mm. was the main kind of songwriter. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the recording process of that was absolutely insane. Absolutely insane. I mean, tracking from my point of view, tracking guitars, normal. But didn't he make you use like that eight string with horrifically high action? That- yeah, but the thing is that I kind of think of that as normal now because if I've tracked so much with Archer over the last five, six years, if I go somewhere where they're using a guitar as it's supposed to be used, I'm just like, you've got no idea what you're doing. Because if Archer's method works, he always tracks with this like 2014 Jackson eight string soloist, which will rarely have more than a few strings on it. And we were we were tuned for that record, The Pardoner, we were tuned to drop A and we were using 80 gauge strings. That's really horrible. Which was disgusting, but it just stayed in tune. And the intonation was on point and it just had an EMG in it. And what more 
do you want for tracking guitars? I mean, I get it now. I don't even think Evergene Bridges has come out. They would probably in their infancy. And I think they were definitely out. I just don't think, A, they were affordable or B, on our radars because, you know, those things, well, they're not as expensive, but they were when they came out. Yeah, well, they weren't coming standard. I think they, no. I don't think they were coming as standard on any guitar. No, I think now. it was like a retrofit thing. So, yeah, I mean, that was the thing that was going to stay in tune and the thing that sounded meatiest. I mean, we tested out my Jackson. Cook had like some Ibanez fan fret thing that they'd just started to make which sounded like just awful, papery, thin nonsense. What pickup did it have in it? had an EMG, A808X. Oh, really? And it just sounded rubbish. It almost sounded like a hollow body. I don't know why to this day. It was really strange. That's peculiar. Maybe, I don't know, I haven't really used the X at all. They're supposed to be a bit more level, but... It's basically the same as the 808. Yeah. And then we tried Archers, and Archers was the one. Archers was the winner. It just sounded the meatiest. But... I mean, it's interesting tracking with Archer because he is not, I mean, you wouldn't mind me saying this, he's not a good guitarist. He can write great riffs, but he's not a good guitarist at all. His sense of tracking and what sounds good when you're putting stuff down is phenomenal. So, you know, his palm use, even like just simple sustained chords, because he's so like, he's so strong. Each chord resonates really well. And when you're battling with like an 80 gauge string, and you're hitting it hard, it sounds great. It's the same as someone that has it perfectly dialed in with like a 64-gauge string, and they hit it perfectly, and they get that same response from the string. But when it's just a bigger, fatter string and a bigger arm like hitting it, it just sounds great. Cool. So he he basically he wrote most of it and did all the pre-production, and then you guys came in and tracked it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, my biggest sort of stamp on that album was the instrumental track host that we did, because I've we would kind of run out of like lyrical concepts, ideas. Right. And I was just like, I would love just an instrumental track on this album. And we laid that down. That was good fun. But it's always difficult with Archer butting heads because if he's very sort of like looks at it on an even keel, whereas I want to fit in as much technique as possible. So he just let me run wild with it a little bit, but then he put, he adjusted bits and I was just like, this makes no sense. But he's just like, but it works. And I'm like, I can't deny it doesn't work. So Touche, good sir. Yeah. Um, but you know how we recorded the drums to that? I that that was on my prom sheet because yeah, because I I I was going away and he it was near Christmas. It was Christmas. <laughs> it was actually Christmas. <laughs> and he stayed at the studio and he's not a drummer. Not in the slightest. And he recorded all the shells individually, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously the choice that we had because your, we your drummer left. Yeah, yeah. Our drummer left that God. He left at um at show at the new cross and new he cross just in. new cross in but that, he told us before right that will make people leave your band having to play the thing in is a... though i left that band at the new cross in right yeah i just whenever that band played the new cross in we were down a member that's good but he told us on the way in and i always remember his immortal words he's just like just think i'm gonna knock it on the head like it was a habit like he was <laughs> smoking crack or something like that and it was just like what are you talking about and obviously, like, we were on the way to a show, and we were quite high up the bill. It was it was for TechFest. It was something about TechFest, tech, tech, tech habilitation, whatever they call it. Yeah, he was. He just said, oh, I'm just going to knock it on the head. We were just like, what are you talking about? And there was basically him quitting. And I think a few days before that, we'd rigged everything up to do the drums for the new album. And we had a fairly, like, track five, Black Candle Gathering, whatever it was called. It's, like, the slowest easiest song 
on the album just to ease him into it. And he just sat down at the kit and was just basically just like, I don't know how the song goes. Like, <laughs> in the studio. In the studio. Like, got to the point where he had sat down at the kit, <laughs> warmed up, and the eight count came in and he was just like, I don't know how the song goes. It was just like, what are you talking about? So we burned a day there. Luckily, obviously, because he worked there, we weren't burning money. Yeah. Which is good. Obviously, that was the huge advantage and why so many bits of that album are quite specific and thought out. And because there was, it's not a budget thing. Yeah. We had the advance through from Prosthetic Records. He put it out and, you know, that just went to Archer for his time there where he wasn't working his other job. But yeah, that's that's why the drums were recorded by Archer. It's because of Ryan had just quit. Yeah, and I want to talk about the way Dave did the drums because it's pretty... So he, if you can get yourself in the mindset of David Archer, he set up the drum kit. I think he got hold of someone's drum kit. Yeah, he had some main pecs. Yeah, I'm not going to say whose kit it was, but he had a drum. Do you know whose kit it was? Yeah. <laughs> I know whose kit it was. Yeah, because we used it on like four things. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was like, can I leave this here? And we're like, yeah, sure, bro. And yeah, then wicked. we just used it loads. Oh, God. It's top of the range, like Mapex. Yeah, yeah new no, I didn't know it. that. Yeah, buttery. He set up the drum kit and then the window, the live room window, which he installed himself, he spun his monitor around and he put it up against the window and he was sight reading the MIDI grid, but one drum at a time. So... I mean, he was blasting like the snare blast, but he was just sight reading it off of the big monitor screen. And I think maybe the kicks were programmed. Yeah, because he wouldn't have. Yeah, it like must that, have been. That's some... That was nicked from ingested, that kick sound. Right. Yeah. But yeah, all the symbols, everything that was done needed to be done with overheads. He just played it in one thing at a time. And I don't mean he just recorded a symbol and then pasted it throughout the project. He did the whole 50-minute record, so each hit was individual, sight-read. I think he even sight-read it, like it wasn't like played half-speed and then just edited in. It was like, you know, every fill was specific, and he did that on Christmas Day. Yeah. Which is testament to how weird and broken that man is. In a delicious way. So delicious. He just gets it done. Definitely does. He definitely did. It sounded great. Yeah. He put the hours in and he's a madman and I love him. Yeah. I wish I saw him more, but not so much anymore. That record kind of came out and then you toured that and then you got Alex Mickleright. Yeah. In Old Al. Yeah. And Alex is probably one of the only drummers in the UK, which doesn't really self-promote enough. Yeah, hugely. Probably the most talented drummer I've worked with doing live sound, like ever. Mm. he's technically ridiculous. Yeah. Put him in top five to ten metal drummers in the UK easily. And contextually top for that, five. contextually, you know, the tours, you were in another band called Viscera after that. You know, you did that Faces of Death and that Faces was death with like yeah. Lorna Shaw and, and he, he... Stood out. Yeah, he stood out. He really out. stood out. I mean, he stands up to like, when we did the Faces of Death tour, obviously Decapitated had Ken Bedene from Aborted playing, and he's a beast. He's a beast. And, you know, 
there's nothing between him and Alex. It's just different. Like you get to the point of where it's like personal taste rather than technical ability. He's insane. Yeah. I, I remember doing the first uh, gig for you guys because I came out and did your live sound for a couple of years and I think it was at the Unicorn. Oh God, yeah. Uh, you know, your feet stick to the beer floor in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just ridiculous because I, because normally I've done like loads of blasts and it's that annoying thing being a sound engineer where someone's blasting and you're having to ride the snare fader constantly because yeah, it's like, oh, you just can't do it. The blast vanishes and it's like half the volume. So yeah. you have to, and it's just gross. But I think just bang on the money every time. I, I didn't even have the snare coming through the PA. Yeah. I was just like, this guy is a beast. He's a machine. He's an absolute machine. Yeah. So after you did the abhorrent thing, you did you have a break for a bit? No, no, no. It was straight into straight into viscera. Yeah. I was, it was kind of like almost like a bit of overlap because of things were going different directions in abhorrent decimation. I don't mean like creative directions, but I think like, like people's life focus was completely shot. And with regards to playing music and touring, and I'd always been under the mind like I was just like I was gonna be a touring musician. I was gonna go on tours. And I wasn't getting that done in Apparent Decimation. So Alex has actually already left. And we had like, there was a group chat message on WhatsApp between a few people. And someone in that group chat was Mr. Jamie Graham, a unique right. leader, formerly of Heart of a Coward, Silosis. And he was just like, I want to do a band. And Alex was just like, come on, man. Like, put your money where your mouth is. If you want to like go bigger, then jump on board with this. Uh, and there was a few people involved. It was actually with, who else was in that group chat? It was Bailey from Silosis, because I think Silosis was kind of on the back burner for Josh. Right, because he, he was doing Architects. Yeah. But nothing really seemed to be materialising, so I scouted around for other people that could get involved, and I instantly thought of Adam Bell. And I know Adam really well. I know he's a good guy, and he's a sick player. Yeah, he's Adam's un, ridiculous. He's, again, he's another beast. So we just got together started hacking out an album and we released obsidian i think it actually came out february 2020 but we released the first single at the end of 2019 which is almost the tipping point of when you don't want to release something because what came next which apparently if you mention kills the reach of your podcast okay we won't say that word but on that note i came to see you in london at Yulu, yeah. We it, got it absolutely bit, done in. <laughs> you got done by, by the in-house guys. They absolutely... Yeah. That's almost like... I mean, people ask me, like, things that I mem like remember from being on tour, especially with, like, Viscera. And obviously there was... On that tour that got cut short, there was things to remember. And Jamie nearly battering some guy, some monitor guy who was completely redundant because everyone on that tour was on ears, I think. I don't, actually, I don't think Lorna were on ears then. No. Or Ingested. Ingested wouldn't have been on ears, so maybe he did have some job, but he didn't for us. And yeah, they were just going at it, and everyone was a bit grumpy because of, you know, the... The, the word. The, the word was starting to creep in and ruin the whole thing. So it looked like the word was going to ruin the tour. And yeah, just that show, as you can attest to, the guy just zeroed Alex's kick. Yeah, the the, the mix was like... In an interesting mix, um, yeah. yeah, that that was that wasn't that was punishment for Jamie going off on oh, one. Oh yeah, and you know I've done it, man. Like, if don't be a dick to the sound guy. It's like yeah. day one stuff, you know. Yeah. Like, so I've done that so many times because it's like 
fuck you guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you're there. And that happened actually, <laughs> I did a couple of years before that, I was with you at the Green Door store. And it was one of those really rough gigs where everything was going a little bit wrong. The sound guy had a really, like, I pissed him off, but he had had a shit day. And he was actually quite happy I was there because he got to go and have, smoke some cigarettes. But I asked him for a mic because the wireless mic that Ashley was using broke. And he just gave it to me in the booth at the back. Here's a, here's a mic, bro. I'm like, that thanks was that during the set yeah yeah i was totally isolated so i just have no idea yeah it was that that was the rough one where it all got a little bit hectic because everything broke and everyone got angry yeah i think that was the start of the end yeah that was definitely the that's when i was booking my ticket yeah we pulled that thread out just gave it a bit of a tug that, yeah. was, that was that point but yeah that, i've been there i've been there i get it being a in-house guy is rough man so you just get abused all day. And no one ever tells you if you've done a good job. They only tell you if you've done a bad job. Yeah. So give sound guys love and cuddles because they need it. Or just tour with an engineer. Or, yeah. Or and you just... can treat him like shit, but it doesn't matter because you're paying him directly and you've got to be in the van or bus with him later. That's it. So did Viscera for a while. Did, did a record with them. Toured yeah. it. Toured it as much as we could, which yeah. was a week. Yeah, before... Everyone got locked in doors for a couple of years or a year. Yeah. Then you kind of stopped doing that. So when we did the first tour, it got canned because of the word. We were out with Decapitated, uh, Decapitated Beyond Creation, Lorna Shaw, and Ingested. It was a great tour. It was a stacked lineup. I remember you saying when we were at that London show, you know, that the American guys were trying to get flights because... Everyone yeah. was getting told they were going to get locked inside. And so, yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, and they were, I remember you saying like some of the, the flights were like stupid money. Yeah, I think the only reason we lasted a couple of extra dates is because of, I don't think Ken could get a flight back to San Francisco from Heathrow. I think it was just like, no, because everyone that was like, everyone that works in London and lives in California or anyone that was over for a little while, it was just straight on it. Because I think Trump was saying that it was going, he was going to, do fulfill his dream of shutting the shutting the doors. Yeah. Wasn't your van or something parked in Belgium or Germany or something so stupid? Well the budget was completely wrecked with like getting on the tour, which makes it sound like a buy-on, but if you don't know what it means to like get onto a tour, there's buy-ons where you're paying an astronomical amount of money to some headlining band that's probably a little bit over the hill. It's normally the over the hill bands that are offering buy-ons. Or like bad legacy bands but you also if you're doing a tour the kind of legit way and you're on a bus no one's paying your bus like people think like oh you make you must make loads of money or this must be so easy and like everything like that but you have to contribute towards your costs a headlining band is not going to take you out for free they're not going to give you an easy ride they're going to chip in their costs but if you're going to be on their bus then you've got to stump up the cash as well. Yeah. So we were on the bus with Decap, Beyond Creation and us. So Decap, to be fair to them, paid half the bus fee. But then between us and Beyond Creation, we had to split the difference, which I think was like 7500 So the reason we had no cash to buy like a nice SKB rig, you know, something that you could chuck through an airport and just be like, that's coming back to me the other side in one piece as long as they don't lose it. So we had a rickety old rig, which you remember because you helped us build it. Yeah. 
and it was in the thinnest box. It the was like rig. glued together A4 paper, that rig. Now, the thought of putting that through a baggage hold and seeing it in one piece the other side was <laughs> never going to happen. No. It was going to be nuts and bolts and cracked plastic everywhere. And also it was like, you know, because of, again, the budget had gone on things like the album, artwork, it was all done properly. There was no half measure on this album because we wanted to, to go out and be big, which to be fair, it did. So yeah, me and Alex, basically what I'm getting at is me and Alex were just like, well, we're going to have to drive the rig over there. We don't want to rent a van because if it's going to be sat stationary for what, 23 days that tour was. So we decided to drive over in Alex's Type R, which was meaty as hell. Like, so we drove over with the rig and it was one of those like, felt like being 17 again, where you're stacked in with all this gear in a car. But this time you're not in a 1.1 Punto. You're in a, whatever the Type R is, down the Autobahn, flat out, which was amazing. It was cool. But I found airport parking at an unfinished German airport. On the outskirts of Berlin, there's another airport just finishing up. They must be finished now. But because the airport wasn't finished, they were selling off cheap long-stay parking. So we drove from my house to Berlin, which is where the tour started, where we were going to get on the bus. Parked up, chucked the gear out, got back in the car, drove to the airport car park, got an Uber back to the first show, just about made it back in time. So yeah, everything was great. We started the tour. We went, did like four or five German dates. We did Denmark and we did Holland. And there's a side one on Holland if you wanted to go into that. Maybe it's for another time. <laughs> then we got over to London and then we did Glasgow. And that's when the tour was fully finished. Like I walked onto stage past Ken who had just booked his flight. So I was like, okay, well, the tour is finished. Miss Daniel. So the tour finished in Glasgow and then I thought, right, well, the car's in Berlin. So everyone from UK, well, there was only one UK band, no, it was us and Ingested who had already dropped off the tour for personal reasons. So it was just us as a UK band. Everyone off the bus was me and Alex. I can't leave him in the lurch and just make him drive back to Germany by himself. So me and him stay on the bus, which had come from Krakow, Krakow, however you want to say it, which was obviously going to go past Berlin. So we said to the TM, like, can we stay on the bus and get a lift back to Berlin? When we get to Berlin, chuck us out and then we'll get back in the car. So we did, we stayed and it was like a couple of days. It was ropey, man. So ropey because of there was two bus drivers, but they weren't doing on off patterns. They were both on. So one's up driving, but the other one's sat next to him, which I found weird because you think one would be driving, one would be sleeping, and then they'd swap That's weird. to minimise downtime. But they'd done it so that one was driving, one was sat next. So when they got into France, so we were driving back from Glasgow, we got over the, over the ferry, which was super depressing because everyone's like, you know, decapitated, have lost money. It's one of their first tour backs since all the stuff that they had to go through with the accusations. So... You know, they can't catch a break. Got into France and because of the guys like, I don't know what they'd call it in Europe, but ours would be like a taco card sort of thing. Yeah. It was just like, you've been driving and up for too long. So you need to take an eight or nine hour break. So we were just sat in some French lay-by for like eight hours with decapitated who are depressed as fuck because they've just lost their headline tour. 
And I was just like, I just want to drive to, I just want to get to Berlin. We've got some hours to do here. Can we just crack on? Yeah. Five, five, I was yeah, tempted yeah, to just like ask if I could drive the coach for a little bit. It was so, and it wasn't even like they pulled into a nice lay-by. It was some horrible French one where there's no, there's just a toilet. And you know, the showers that grubby you don't use you just don't touch you don't go near no. so then we got all the way to berlin one o'clock in the morning like a couple of days later and then we just had to get in the car and just drive all the way back and i think it was the monday that we got back later on that night boris was just like right borders closed yeah stay in your houses bitches yeah and that was it that was kind of that touring cycle because the album did really well like it was millions of streams and it was just dead in the water and then during when we were under the control of the word, we got offered Black Dahlia Murder Tour. And that was like a monster tour. Black Dahlia, Rings of Saturn, and us. It was a six-weeker. And yeah, that got pal- pl- planned for the January. And you think, like, that's going to be on because it's March now. And that's well in the future in January. We're going to be going on that tour, boys. And then... We're locked down again later on in the year and it didn't happen. It got pushed back a year and you think it's all right. It's been pushed back a year. It got done again. Yeah. So that's really depressing, isn't it? Yeah, I just realised how much that that has affected my mental state. But that's what you're going to ask me about ingested. I mean, that's what kind of led me towards ingested. Like when everything started to lift up again, I did bloodstock with bloodstock with viscera the Sophie stage at like six o'clock is rammed and because of we'd had our first touring cycle kind of stunted the band hadn't been able to grow in the physical aspects like live touring circuit I mean we had rep and we had the numbers to back it but obviously agents look at headcount for headlines so if you like I mean if anyone's listening that sort of needs to know how to gain access to booking agencies and stuff like that, what you need to do is you need to go out and do a mixture of support slots and headliners. But what gets you CV kudos with booking agents to get onto their books is to have headline shows. Even if you like, you don't, you're not hacking out like the Astoria. I'm not talking Astoria. I mean, how long has that been dead? Even if you're not packing out big venues. You've still shown that your headcount is like, you know, you're bringing in 150 people to the Black Heart, if it can hold that much, I don't know. But that's what gets you onto the radar of booking agents, and that's what gives you some backup. It doesn't matter who the support band was, as long as you were the headline act, if you've brought 100, 175 to a venue, they count that as yours, no matter who the headline is, because you're the main attraction. And Viscera hadn't really had the chance to do that. At the same time, I had always kept in contact. I mean, I always keep in contact with everyone as best as I can. Ingested messaged me and said that they had split from one of their guitarists. And would I be willing to go and do, I think it was like a small UK tour because international touring wasn't back on. So they asked me if I wanted to do a UK tour. I think it was a UK headline tour, that one. And then the second half of it was main support to Bleed From Within. Right. Great band. So I did that and they said, okay, cool. Do you want to do another one at the start of next? This must have been at the end of 2021. 
Right. And they said, do you want to do one start of 2022? So headline run was ingested, body snatcher, bound in fear. Someone else? Can't think who it would have been. Acranius. So yeah, I did that. And then when we were on that, they asked me if I wanted to do it fully. Right. And I was just like, well, I'm still in Viscera. What have you got cooking? Like, I want to know what, if I'm going to think about doing this, I need to know what I'm getting myself into. Because I know those guys are road dogs, like real proper road dogs. And they said, we got fit for an autopsy tour, European. It like locked and like, this is all locked and loaded with them. There's never any sort of like if, buts or maybes. It's if they're talking about it, it's in the bag. So it's fit for an autopsy tour. Then later on, it would be dying fetus tour, suffocation tour. And in there was mixed in with things like Hellfest. Hellfest was a big one. And then obviously there was the talk of America touring because they do tour America a lot. Yeah. So I was just like, you know what? I am not a young man anymore. I've been looking at a sand timer, which seems to be running low on sand. So I just decided to, you know, to grab it. I think this is something that is kind of a hot topic. When you're 20 or you're in your mid-20s, like touring is very, very, very different when you're like in your 30s and your mid-30s because... You know, you've got a dog and a wife and a house and a mortgage. And, you know, when I was 23 and I was touring, I didn't have anywhere to live. So it didn't matter because I didn't have any outgoings. And that's just, it's, it becomes slightly more tricky, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. So so I guess your thoughts were like, well, yeah, Yeah, this has got limited. Reality is always chasing you. Like the real world is always chasing you when you're touring. Like you meet some people out on the touring circuit. And you kind of think, like, I don't envy your reality. Now, yeah, I I had this happen recently. I had to jump on a show doing sound, and it was this kind of rock band, and it was like a kind of closed stage, like VIP thing. And the engineer, I think he was, like, in his 60s, and I'd never met anyone who was in their 60s doing sound because they're either dead. Yeah. Or they've gone, this is bullshit, and they've stopped doing it. And he was he was so grumpy and hated it. And it really, like, rung home, like, yeah, why yeah. I don't go out and do that stuff. I'll do the odd one or two if I get asked, but I'm not I'm not doing it at all. Ever. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. You know, like, there were certain aspects, there were certain things that I saw, like, from, there's a guy that I listen to a podcast of. It's an ice hockey podcast, massive interest of mine. And he's had some brushes with sort of more major leaguey stuff. And he refers it to, you know, if someone was there for a bit, didn't stick around long, he refers to it as having a couple of coffees. So if someone got to the NHL and they didn't really like, it didn't last and they weren't a lifer in the NHL, it was just like, oh, he got to the NHL and he had a cup of coffee. So I consider myself of like having a cup of coffee in the, in the real touring circuit world. And you see some of the, some of the realities like there was a band that I was on tour with and I mean this guy would be absolutely hailed as a legend I won't name names but he I can't even say where we were because someone will just google and just be like I know what band that was now he just pulled out and I'm not even sure whether it came from an orifice or not but he just pulled out these um these tablety things and just racked it up into three big old lines and just hoofed it back 
And I was just like, it was like a brownie powdery sort of thing. And I was just like, that's what? And then someone was just like, yeah, dude, that's methadone. He has to have it. I was just like, oh God. So he's like, that's for people that do heroin. And that's because he couldn't bring heroin into the country. Great. Yeah. And how old was this guy around about, roughly? I think he's in his 50s. Yeah. Okay. And that's like quite, you have to be kind of like, I don't know, (laughs) you have to be a special kind of person to want to be doing that and living the reality back home. Because if I think like, well, the main sort of topic of discussion here is what your, what people, it's the iceberg effect. So people see the top of the iceberg, this big, glorious, shiny thing floating above the water. But then the 80% of it that's underneath the water, which is the reality of what people are like back home, what their personal relationships are like, what their work, if they're working, life balances. I mean, a lot of people you would believe are touring musicians, are full-time, this is my job, are going home to very like i mean it's fine like if you want to live certain ways but it's not like it's not glorious not mtv cribs no it's definitely not i mean we are well beyond that we are 30 years late to the party for that sort of life you have to have all that presence then you have to go home and be fucking skin yeah yeah, even even bands you know the prime example and this has been you know noted on every platform periphery right you kind of think oh they're the biggest like progressive metal band in the world and you know they've all they're all doing other things because music doesn't pay it's a really steep gap like the climb between the two i mean the guy i saw an article the guy from parkway drive is selling his house like i think i can't remember what he is selling his house and this i think it's like 10 million so he's there's obviously like there is money but in the touring world your band that survives out there it is shoestring at all times. It is shoestring. And yeah. anything can happen at any point. Like the words, that ruined us. We dumped seven and a half grand into our bus share, which took ages to come back. We'd pumped X amount of money into P- uh, like to PR for stuff that would gain us tours, which would never come back. Like people weren't caring about PR articles, about tours and this, that and the other. Of course. Because of that wasn't going to be a reality. So you can have all sorts of things go wrong. And all it takes is like one person to leave, one person to quit. And you're like, you're legacy feeding another mouth because if he was part of a record that came out or he was part of it from the start. I mean, I've heard stories about people having to get paid out because they were an original integral member of the formation of the band. Mm, well, it's that whole thing with Nicky Sticks at the minute. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't really kept up with that, but, you know, he, I don't know who who's right, who's wrong, or... It's I'm probably all wrong in that I'm band. just indifferent, but, um, you know, he's, I think he did an interview and was was basically saying they're all playing to backing tracks yeah, and all got yeah, a little yeah. bit fruity, so... But that's what it does to you, because you're like, oh, I've had to part with your shit for so long, and yeah. fuck you guys, and it, it does kind of, it does make you kind of grumpy and a bit jaded like i'm definitely jaded i only did it for well, i did it for eight eight odd years solidly and yeah i came out the other side and i literally didn't do anything musically for like three years at I all don't blame you because i just i just couldn't face it like i had quite a lot of 
kind of emails asking me if I wanted to do this band. I was just like, no, I don't want to do. Yeah. I want to sell everything. You said something a little while ago, which makes it interesting though, because of like, you said like about the glory days and like when the internet came and ruined everything. I don't know if like, it's very easy to be like old and grumpy like we are and say, kids are ruining it. I think we're in a massive, massive transition phase of what is going to happen. And I think the word only just exacerbated it even more. It just chucked fuel on the fire. Yes, because if you think about the new stars, people that are getting your signature guitars and your hype and press and everything like that, they're internet-based. Yeah, no, it's completely changed. I was just an old dog with no new tricks on the edge of that. And then I remember when I knew my music career was over, I did a gig. Oh, what's the one in Camden? That's not Boston Music Rooms. No, not Boston. It's in Camden. It's like right up the end of Camden. But we we did a gig in there and it was like Enstricari was supporting my band. And I just watched them. I was like, no, no, that's that. And then I think it lasted another couple of months because it was like, that's so cooked. And then they were like the new kids coming up with the new sound where we were kind of six years early. It's just like on a cycle. And that was quite a big pill to swallow. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's like similar with me. Like, I think. I was, it's easy to try and find, like, what's the expression, like, losers make excuses, winners find a way. But when I was at a crucial age, like, just early 20s or whatever, probably not even that, and YouTube came out, like, because before that, I was sick at guitar because if I could play all these Megadeth songs and no one around locally could touch me and stuff like that. But then if I'd been... That at that point when YouTube's huge and I'm thinking, oh my God, I need to be better than, you know, little whatever his name is playing in his bedroom in a dark corner of Tokyo or that sick shredder that's out there in Orange County, Los Angeles. I was like, oh my God, but your pool of reference is so tiny back in the day, but now it's so massive and you've got people constantly pushing the envelope. And but- actually that's a really good point because you know, we're kind of like tribal people and Mm. we were exposed to more media in a day than we would have been in our whole lifetime, even up to like this kind of 50s, 60s. Yeah. And then going back, you know, years before paleo times, you know, you basically would meet a hundred people in your life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we're not, we're not actually wired up for that. So you were like the local hero shred guy. Then all of a sudden you're just you're yeah, not just, you're you're not very good compared yeah. to this massive pull, and that's like super overwhelming. Yeah, well, yeah, definitely. The more the internet's come out, and the more the younger the people get, and the more talented they get, I'm just like, oh my word. Um, but yeah, like what you said with um, how everyone's exposed to things. If you think back to like your day and a little bit before, it was just the main music outlets. Like everyone reads or like you see sponsored ads, and it's Kerrang, and it's what does Corey like they're always people respond what does but yeah but what does Corey Taylor think because it's they're like memeing them because of it's everything's related to like Corey Taylor or the same like five six bands rinse lather repeat and that's kind of what the media was because all we could buy was Kerrang you could buy it from WH yeah you're being and fed. that was yeah so your scope was just like you might get to the back but you wanted to read the Metallica article or the corn article or something like that because that was in the first like X amount of pages. And then you'd read the back and you'd start to look through some gig listings or some reviews of bands that you hadn't really heard of. But then you'd have to shell out 10 quid to take a punt on a band that you hadn't heard of, which wasn't going to happen. 
Whereas now, you know, I've checked out X amount of bands in the past week and it's cost me, you know, your, nothing. Your Spotify subscription. My Spotify subscription, yeah. Which is like £10, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's crazy. I think, I think it's a whole new world and the way we're kind of like, kind of devouring music is completely different. And I think it's going to, in the long term, it'll be good. It's just, as you say, it's kind of a bit Wild West still with stuff. And it is. I mean, look what happened to um, Lorna as well. Because Lorna blew up because of TikTok. Like, well, I don't dispute the bands and I know them well and they're great people, but something that really helped them along the road was Will making those sounds, it getting devoured by TikTok, and then it just kicked them into the stratosphere. So as well, like, you think about, I'll go back to him, Tim, Tim Henson from Polyphia was obviously very in tune because he was at the right age to understand all the new tech and everything like that and all the new social media platforms. And he's become a poster boy for Ibanez now. You've got to think of others. I can't think of off the top of my head. But there's plenty of them coming through. And I think it will really shape how everything goes in the future. I don't think it's going to be as much about road dogging it. I watched a Finn McKenty thing recently. He does the Punk NBA on YouTube. And he's like, oh, hard, hardcore guy. He's probably my age. And he was kind of talking about there's not actually those bands that can like do that hype tour thing are legacy bands. So you, yeah, you yeah. look at stuff and it's still corn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And these bands, and there's no real bands who are doing those big tours from they're all back in the day bands. Yeah. You know, I think the only band I can really think of, like who are a metal band who could like do big stuff is the ghost inside. Really? Yeah. When I think yeah. of like you know, bums was that the guy that lost his leg? Yeah, the, dr- the they, they had a really bad bus crash, didn't they? Yeah, and he yeah, lost yeah. the drummer. Yeah, lost his leg, which is just he's still playing though, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. He like it took some Def years, Leppard, but he's it? he's got he's got like this pad thing. I watched a video on it. It's really cool, and you know they're great. I they're just the best metalcore band for that big riffy. Never listened to one song. I really like them, man. It's 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 great. It's just if you re- like them, I know I'm gonna hate them. It's just big, big fifty one fifty vibe. So. Sounds like bad fifty one fifty five. You just hate everything that I like. That's true. So you're not you're not out on the road, kind of doing some non musical things day to day, which which you enjoy, which is great. And you know you're you're doing music uh, on your own terms. And what what is that? What does that look like day to day now? Like yeah, so I'm not playing with Ingested anymore. It's kind of taken a back step for me with regards to just where I'm at. So music for me now i've kind of gone back to how i was when i was 16 17 it's a bit weird like everything's come full circle because when i was 16 17 i was playing a mexican strat in my old bedroom and i was trying to play as fast and as technical and as weird as possible and i didn't really care about the race to the bottom that is modern deathcore so what it looks like for me now is relearning stuff that i've forgotten or going on sort of explorations of deeper understandings of music theory and if you know even three years ago me could listen to me talk right now he'd be disgusted (laughs) i mean i've just placed an order on what is effectively a strat which is insane for me i've sold all my h strings sold my baritone a quad cortex gets picked up in a few days so i'm just going to be at home with plugins so yeah it's going to look more like something that i I mean, hopefully he even listens to this just to see how I'm doing. And if he does, hi, Chris. My guitar teacher back in the day used to be a real, real good jazz and classical player. 
And he used to almost laugh at me for for the stuff that I was into because he could pick it up real quick and he could probably sight read it. You know, he had a Malmsteen book for a laugh and it was nice. just like, huh, just pick it up and just something like that. Just a beast. Yeah, I used to watch a video. Like, There's a video of him somewhere on YouTube. He's not very, he's very, very bad with public, like public persona and um, self-publishing and everything like that. But he's an insane, insane mind on guitar. And he always used to, he kind of would just be like, one day everything's going to come full circle and you're going to want to do the stuff which I'm nagging at you to do. You should phone him up, man, and just be like, look, you were right. He lives in America, it's impossible. I can't phone him. I don't want him. You could definitely phone him. I think that brings him a lot of joy. He has kept tabs um, on sort of like my musical endeavours and everything like that. And he's sent me a few nice messages before. But, you know, if I could go back in time and just stand there over 16-year-old me and just be like, what is coming? And if you did everything that he said, you'd be 10 times better. Doesn't work like that. No, that's life. That's yeah, it definitely regrets. is life. You know, I, I've, over lockdown, you know, you gave me some guitar lessons for exchange of me kind of helping you with kind of production stuff and other bits. And it, it made me realise how shite I was and how I didn't practice. And... I've got to the age now where if I don't play for an hour a day, that stuff that I picked up and I got like 200 BPM, that kind of little shreddy riff stuff, I just can't do it. Yeah, yeah. But it's like embarrassing. It's like it's like that bit in Back to the Future, you know, where he's like, he's, his hands, oh, yeah, he's, and he's like hitting away. all the weird notes and that's like me if I haven't warmed up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just suck. But I don't, it's that other thing, as you get a little bit older, I don't care about that anymore. Yeah, Either, yeah, yeah. Because I, I'm quite happy with like what I can do, and it's not my main interest anymore. Yeah, yeah. No, um, it's still mine. Yeah, and <laughs> but, but you, you know, you're you're killing it. So, gear wise, so you was just saying you've just bought a Schecter. You Schecter, told me earlier. Yeah, Schecter Nick Johnston, which is a Strat. Has it got a humbucker in it? Yeah, so it's humbucker. Are you going to pull the humbucker out of it and put affluence in it? No, definitely not. Definitely not. I'm not even sure what pickups in it. See, that's, it's the neck that's that I'm a dab, after. That's a dab vibe right there. Yeah. Just going to go with what's in it. Just going to go with what's cool. Everyone's raving about it. Everyone says it's great. No, because I know the I know a few people that have had one or played one. And people, like, I'm still in touch with people that work at Anderton's because I used to work there back in the day. And this has got a coil tap, so I can make okay. it single coil. Yeah, it's just strapped with a flat-ish neck. I think it's like 14-inch radius. Okay. So the only thing that I don't like is like, you know, playing a baseball bat I picked up your awful excuse for a guitar a minute ago and felt like I was trying to strangle a drain pipe I have two guitars one of them has got a larger neck than the other one but it's very pretty but my my gym root telly's got a little neck on it it does and it's very nice so you can't slag that one off no I can't that is a good guitar it is a good guitar the other one's horrendous so mean (laughs) (laughs) but yeah no I have that I yeah, so you've got that, and then you've just sold your neural. So what what sims are you playing on at home? Ones that I a hundred percent paid for. Cool, that's good. Have you downloaded neural amp model yet? After I told you, to? no, haven't. <laughs> You're such a long head. So yeah, you I just want one thing. I just want to turn my computer. Yeah. I don't want to mess around with sounds. Like that's for someone that's you know more involved in that stuff than me. I've got a few sounds out of. I've mostly used the. I like the Corey Wong. Yeah. Which paid for. Paid for Corey Wong, yeah. 
And I like the Pliny, which I paid for. Okay, you've got some neural stuff. Yeah, and what's the other one? Don't like the Abasi. Paid for. I think. Well, so it's just mostly those two. So I'm basically now, six months ago, I was playing eight string guitars, tuned to drop F through neural quad cortex, gated, nothing else. And now I'm playing with like the most minimal amount, minimal amount of gain with, you know, just a metronome and some backing tracks and drum loops. Just some dab vibes. So I've got time for that. But Shred vibes. You need, to, you need to get on the neural amp model though because it's sick. I'm going to show you in a minute. That'd be good. No, it's, it's re- like, it's game changer. Is it though? Yeah, I think it is. I think it's going to, it's just going to kill everything. Like, Tonex is already like soaking up the kind of Kemper neural market and this is free. And pe- people are just, just capturing their amps and some of them are shit of course they are but yeah, most yeah, of yeah. them are sick like I've got a full that's another thing do you remember when Kemper was like the world's changed the world's yeah, totally changed I think changed. it's happening again that's what I'm getting at like and they uh, this guy Null I watched this guy and like do Null tests so I know you know what a Null test is yeah, but yeah. so what, what you if you take uh, the same waveform and you phase invert it it will cancel the each other out so it's called a Null so if you take a captured tone up against the real amp the more you can hear, the less close the null is, where if it's a smaller amount of sound, the closer the null is. And he did like Kemper. Who did that? Was that Mendel? Mendel did one, uh, which was really interesting. But another guy, I think this guy's Italian or Spanish. Right. I'm not sure. But he's done, he did it. And it was a bit more rocky because Mendel did like a 5153 type vibe. Yeah. But this was a bit more of a rock amp. And yeah, it was the the... The kind of the null signal was so minimal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I haven't looked at how you wire it all up because I know with the Kemper and the Neural and the IK Multimedia Tonex is really simple. I'm I'm sure this is a bit more of a pain. But yeah, it's not going to be as easy. It's sick, but it's great because it's very much like it's like the Napster of guitar amp plugins. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. There's everyone. There's like a someone's built a website and everyone's sharing tones. There's a Facebook group community. Yeah. It's nice and it sounds good, so I'm going to force you to get that for your Reaper setup. Cool. I've got some, um, just a couple of uh, unrelated questions just to finish up. Just saying I wanted to touch on. It's going to be weird. (laughs) It's not weird. You've made it sound like it's going to be weird. No, it's not weird, but it's weird that you got struck by lightning. Yeah, that happened. Yeah, so... That happened, didn't it? So it did happen. Do you want to just run you the, through the play-by-play <laughs> of getting struck by lightning? Well, you came back and met up with me and Aaron just after it happened. Did I? Yeah, yeah. We went to we went out for Aaron's birthday, and you just got electrocuted. Where did we go? Oh, I think it was like awful Smith and Westerns or something. And you'd literally just got electrocuted. Yeah. So my wife's family live. A lot of them live in Mallorca, in an area called Alcudia. And I went to a place around the corner. Like I used to go to a place around the corner called Puerto Pienza. Um, and we used to go to this place called Formentor. I used to go there as a kid. And it's absolutely stunning. Like white beach, crystal clear water. It's beautiful. You can only get there by boat or by driving. You wouldn't fly there. I know it sounds silly, but the drive is horrible. Most people get the boat there, but Laura right. gets seasick on Brighton Pier. So... I was just, I said to Laura, I was just like, you must have been to Four Mentor. And she was just like, no, I've 
never been to Full Mental. I was like, it's like 20 minutes drive from your uncle's house. Like, we should go there tomorrow. So, yeah, we go there. We drive over the mountains. And just as we get in there, it starts to be a bit cloudy, a bit windy. So by the time we actually get down to the beach, that crystal clear water is super murky because it's windy. It's drizzly. It's horrible. And I was just like, oh. And she was just like, yeah, nice one for dragging us here with that horrible hell drive that you've made us do. Wow. So I was like, oh, all right. And then it starts raining just a little tiny bit, like a spit or two. She was like, can we just go? And I was like, fine. You know, you big something up and you're just like, oh, I just want to get out of this situation now. Yeah. So we start driving back over the mountain. But on the way over there, we'd seen like a really nice viewpoint, which was halfway up a mountain. And it's over this big, like enclosed cove sort of thing. So we like say, oh, you know, let's stop here for a second. And that's basically the extent of my memory of before the event happened. So a hazy memory says that I got out of the car with Laura and I was leaning over the metal barrier with really dark clouds around. It wasn't raining, but it was cold and it was a bit windy. And then all of a sudden, I just literally, I didn't even hear that though. I woke up on the floor with just this insane pain down the left-hand side of my face. And I had no idea what happened and everyone was just screaming. And it was the bit, the only thing that I can give you as a point of reference, if you want it from my angle, is how well do you remember Saving Private Ryan? Yeah, yeah. You know the bit where Tom Hanks' character is leaning up against the tank after something's just blown up next to him? There's all the noise. And it's just distant noise. Yeah, the ringing kind and of And the vibe. ringing, yeah. I was just sat up against this barrier just like, what's happened? And I was like, are you okay? And I was just like, I have no idea. You can hear it in the video because it's on video. Oh somehow. yeah, I forgot. I forgot uh, she was videoing as well. Yeah. That just makes it better as well. <laughs> so I was just like, I have no idea. And she just grabbed me and just ran me to the car because if she does, you know, she does enough weights to be able to lift me up. She was just legging it to the car. And as I was legging it up the stairs, kind of, she was basically holding me up. My vision started to go like really tunneled and my face just felt like I had loads of hooks in it with loads of weights on. It was really weird. I can't explain it. So I was just like, I'm basically having a stroke. And yeah, then we got in the car. And Laura's never driven on the wrong side of the road. And we were halfway up a mountain. And health and safety in the outback of Mallorca just does not exist. No. So there's no, like, barrier keeping you on the road. And when you first drive in a foreign country on the wrong side of the road, you're always a little bit too far over towards the curb, which is the edge of the mountain. And I was pressed up against this window, absolutely just out of it, just wrecked from being smashed by lightning. <laughs> So, yeah, I'm just looking down the side of this mountain, just like, I'm going to die in a car crash now. Yeah, got down to hospital. Laura doesn't speak a lick of Spanish. I'm the one out of the two of us that speak Spanish, but now I'm just going downhill because I was starting to like pass out a little bit. We get to hospital. Alexa, her cousin, shows up, who was obviously born and bred, Mallorquin, and she's able to talk to the doctors and everything like that. And that was when we found out that we had it on video because Laura was asked to explain what happened. And she said, all I know is I was videoing. And then she made that scene where she was like, oh my God, I've got my phone. And she looked on her phone and there was like a 20 minute video and she just wound it back. And then just, you saw the bang. 
in the video and that's when the doctors took us seriously because they were just like yeah sure he did he seems fine he's like not exploded but sure enough i took a big old bite on lightning and it nearly killed me it's brilliant but you're still here uh so you, your time wasn't up but you like do you have to go and have checks every year now because of that i had to have checks for a little while afterwards because i had uh heart arrhythmia so a regular heartbeat so basically my heart's beat was like your rhythm playing. Sloppy. Transient's just... Just nothing. The, the, grid, just the grid is there, but... doesn't matter what you do, you're just behind, it's frustrating. Yeah, just can't even... Yeah. It's half, half an effort. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I had to just have stuff like that, but it was fine. I had to have a few different tests. You're not going to ask me about other tests, are you? No, no. Thank God. No, we're not going there. Because then we start talking about the magnesium powder and then we don't talk about the magnesium powder. <laughs> cool. One more question. Go on. Just, this is unrelated again. Just cheese. What, what's your favourite cheese? Stilton. Stilton. Okay. Yeah, Strong. I'm a Stilton. But the thing is, though, I haven't really indulged in cheese for a little while. The reason I like Stilton is because you pair that with a red wine. Okay. I didn't know you liked red wine. I did back in the day. You don't drink, though, really. Oh, I know. But no. back in the day, I was a okay. fan of red wine. Well, maybe you need to get on some cheese. Like, we have a lot of cheese in this house. Got. We've got some mature cheddar. I've got some... What is it, Cathedral City or something? No, no, it's some more posh than that from Audi or something. I've got my friend Taz, who works uh, in Prague quite a lot. She brings me back some nice hard cheeses every time she comes home. So I've got about three or four hard cheeses. Oh. I don't know what they're called because I can't read them, but I had a nice goat goats one, which was really... A bit of feta. Yeah, fat is good. And There's something that I'm missing, though. I can't think what it is. Edam. Oh, I went to Edam the other week. And Porcelou as well. I was in Edam. You were in Edam. I was in Edam. Okay, well, where is Edam? Holland. Holland. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, because you, you were away. Yeah. Did you eat any Edam in Edam? I ate some Edam in Edam. Oh, I great. ate loads of damn Edam in Edam. That's perfect. I think I think we can end it there yeah. on, the, on the Edam because that's just top draw. Thanks for coming in, Ross. And uh, nice. yeah, this has been the Blood, Sweat, and Ears podcast featuring Ross Lenny McLennan, and we'll see you again soon. Peace. Nice.